Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 23rd, 2015. This is episode 1610 of the Survival Podcast. I'm bringing Toby Hemingway on to talk today about his new book called The Permaculture City, which is a little bit different take when it comes to looking at permaculture than a lot of things we've talked in the past. Less about how to uh, grow food and more about how to grow a community, uh, how to develop self-organizing, self-governing communities uh, in urban and higher-density situations, which is something we're going to have to do if we're going to deal with a lot of changes coming in our future. We really are. We cannot continue the way that things are going in many ways, financially, uh, resource-wise. There's a ton of things that we need to do for ourselves and stop looking to someone else to do for us. We're going to talk about all that and more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. Before there were any sponsors, there was Vic Rontalis saying to me, hey Jack, we love what you're doing, we want to be part of it, and we want to know how we can sponsor your podcast. Problem was, I was in like episode 20, and there were like, I don't know, 70-ish people listening to the show, and I just didn't feel right taking anybody's money in return for exposing them to just 70 people in an audience who may or may have not continued to listen. But what I said was, hey, Vic, let me tell you what. Just just stick with us, and when we're ready, I will give you the first opportunity to become a sponsor of the show. It was quite a while later. It was February of the next year that we launched the MSB, and we launched the sponsorship program along with the Member Support Brigade. And at that time, Vic stepped up as a sponsor and a discount partner. Vic has now been with the Survival Podcast as a sponsor and supporter for seven years. Uh, that's why I call them the original survival podcast sponsor, because they were first and they've been loyal as anything could ever be. Seven years in the podcasting world? Are you kidding me? If you check out Safe Castle, you'll find all the things you need for your prepping. 
uh, from long-term storage foods to the stuff to make your own long-term storage foods, from the practical to the tactical, and everything in between. If you check out their sister site, you can link over from safecastle.com. You'll find they make some of the best hardened shelters there are. And I don't know if you've paid attention, but there's these things called tornadoes that come around once in a while. So a shelter isn't just a bunker in the ground to hide away from the Illuminati. There are practical, everyday reasons to have hardened shelters. You can find all of that and more with the original Survival Podcast sponsor, Safe Castle Rule. Remember, they also do a discount membership program. It's $49, and you get big discounts on just about everything they sell for the rest of your life. But they are such awesome sponsors, they give that away to all members of My Support Brigade, effectively paying for your first year of the MSB right there. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. We have the year 1610, and because uh, the episode is 1610, I have 240 day from Alex Shrugged on TSPWiki.com. I have Galileo's Galileo, Jupiter's moons, and Pluto's new horizons. And I have Judge Dredd is judged illegal, common law, and the parliament. I'm going to read Galileo, Jupiter's moons, and Pluto's new horizons just because I think it's cool. Galileo has made improvements to his telescope, increasing its magnification to 20x. He turns the scope to the moon, and he's surprised to see imperfections in the heavenly body. Then he turns his scope to the planet Jupiter, a wandering star, which is what the word planet means. Jupiter resolves itself into a disk. He notices three smaller stars near it, and over the next few nights he realizes these are moons. Soon a fourth moon resolves itself. <coughs> These will be called the Galilean moons. Galileo's daughter is only nine years old, but she can recognize her father's deep interest in the stars. She will enter a convent at age 13 and take the name Sister Maria Celeste, as in Mary of the Heavens. She will help her father with his work. Years later, these heavenly observations will upset church officials, but Galileo is a very smart man. He can tap dance with the best of them. In the modern day, when the space probe Galileo reaches Jupiter, it will count 67 moons, the largest one being spotted by Galileo with his little telescope. My take by Alex Shrug. New Horizon space probe reached the frozen world of Pluto in mid-July 2015. It was launched in 2006. After Pluto was found to have a large moon that they named Charon, Charon was the mythological ferryman who would take souls across the river Styx into Hades. The moon is so large, one can say that Pluto and Charon actually orbit each other in a waltz. While New Horizons was on its way, four more moons were spotted. For a dwarf planet, Pluto has quite a number of moons, but the really amazing thing is that Pluto is smaller than any of the four Galilean moons. This is why scientists argue that Pluto really isn't a planet. They finally settled on calling Pluto a dwarf planet because Pluto is round and the scientists wanted to keep the public off their backs. Now the more things change, the more they stay the same, huh? Um, so Galileo made some really interesting, accurate, and proper discoveries of our solar system, which later enraged the church. The church, of course, being a big part of the state at the time. They didn't want the truth to be the truth. So they put pressure on Galileo, and he had to tap dance around it and do some things. Well, today, the scientists say, when we look at what we call a planet in our solar system, Pluto's not really a planet, but the... The people bitched, and the people are the source of the money that comes from the state to fund the scientists. So all of a sudden, the scientists say, okay, it's a dwarf planet. And I think there's a lot of other scientific things that we are told are valid or true that follow that same path. I'll leave it at that today. The other thing I want to talk about, though, 
And it really fits in with like what Toby and I will be talking about today in a, in a way, is if we can take a rocket, put stuff on it, put it on a, a launch pad, blast it out of our atmosphere into outer space, send it hurtling through space, and then send images back of something like the, the dwarf planet Pluto and its moons, How amazing is that, really? I don't think people even understand like how difficult that is. It's not just getting there. It's getting there with equipment capable of like sending back the images. The, 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 the depths of the cold at this distance, just to keep everything from like freezing up and not working, and still have it respond to us and do what we want it to do, and be, make a, be able to make adjustments at this distance. The time delay between us transmitting an instruction and it actually even getting to the New Horizon space probe and it being able to respond is such that it has to be pre-programmed to do things. You have to make decisions well in advance because the information comes back, that takes time, and then we send the information back out. Even at the speed of light, we're talking about taking quite a bit of time to get between here and there with instructions and feedback and information. It takes the light from our sun eight and a half minutes to get here. Pluto is so much further from us than the sun. It's striking if you look at a, like a scale model of the, of, of the solar system to see how far that is. Again, eight and a half minutes for light to get from the sun to the earth. If the sun went out like that in a snap, for eight and a half minutes you wouldn't notice anything. And then darkness and cold and death and ah, all right, okay. <laughs> How long do you think it takes for a beam of light, which the communications we send in radio travels at light speed through space, to get from Earth to the planet Pluto if it takes eight and a half minutes to get to the sun? The answer is five and a half hours on average because the, the orbit changes. But five and a half hours... To get to Pluto. So any and all instructions sent to the probe at this point are about 10 hours in delay or 10 hours in lag. In other words, it takes about five hours for the information to get here and then five hours to get back, really five and a half, so 11 hours. It takes 11 hours between us getting information and us doing anything in return. And then it takes another five and a half hours for us to know if it actually did what it was supposed to do. So about 16 and a half hours between seeing, sending, and knowing. If we can do that, and if you go and look at the, the, the images that we're getting now of Pluto, it's pretty impressive, the resolution, what we're able to see. We, we take this all for granted. We, we live in the microwave age, guys. We really do. We don't appreciate how amazing stuff like this is anymore. We really should, and we should think this as a challenge to ourselves. How can we use this to inspire ourselves to do more? I think we can. Before I bring Toby on, let's go ahead and remind you real quick here about the Member Support Brigade. If you join the Member Support Brigade, you can help support the work I do at 18.3 cents an episode. And you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members and seeing all the great discounts you get if you become an MSB member. And remember, if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, 
Uh, you do get a discount if you email me before, not after you join with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Then tell me about your service in one or two sentences. Remember, it is prior service or active duty, either one, not just retired and active duty. And with that, I want to say uh, it's time to get into the main topic of today's show, which is developing sustainable self-governing communities within our urban areas. And to talk about that, I have one of my uh, really good friends and a guy I really respect and I've learned a lot from on the line. Hey, Toby, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right. It's great to be here, Jack. Lots of fun. Looking forward to it. Hey, I have you on today to talk a lot about a lot of things. We're going to talk about urban permaculture. We're going to talk about your new book called The Permaculture City. We're going to talk about developing local and individual control, developing self-governing communities and things like that, which is awesome. But before we do, there's maybe some folks that you know haven't heard your previous interviews or don't really know who Toby Hemingway is. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you got into permaculture and uh, doing what you do now, which is writing, teaching, lecturing, all kinds of great stuff? Yeah, yeah. No, my, my formal training is actually in science. I was a geneticist for a bunch of years, but I really didn't like the way that biotech was going. Genetic engineering and various things were not going the way I wanted them to. And right about then, we were moving to the country, and I was playing hooky from my less-than-satisfying job in the Seattle Public Library and found this big book in the homesteading section called Permaculture, a Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison. And I pulled it down and looked through it and said, wow, this is, you know, climate and trees and ecology and food and energy and water and shelter and community. And it's everything I've ever interested in, but I had no idea how all the pieces fit together. How, how come I'm interested in energy and community and food? And, and Mollison put it all together into permaculture for this whole systems approach to designing sustainable human settlements. And basically, my wife and I both quit our corporate jobs, and, and I haven't looked back ever since. And I wrote this book about 15 years ago called Gaia's Garden, A Guide to Homescale Permaculture. And that amazingly enough to me became a pretty successful book and took over my life and uh, did a second edition a few years ago of that book and it's just been living and breathing and, and everything permaculture ever since uh, now I have a new book out called the permaculture city which is really more urban and perm and uh, urban and suburban permaculture so that's a in a nutshell what my track has been for the last 20 years or so Just to me, you may, kind of made me think of something there, Toby, when you were talking about what what really struck you out of the, the Permaculture's Designer's Manual. And that is that I think a lot of people maybe get too much absorbed with the concept that permaculture can grow food, you know, grow gardens and food and trees and stuff like that. I mean, it is a huge part of it. We all have to eat. You know, there's the old... The old thing from what Austin Powers get in my belly when there's there's a there's a reality there. But do you think that maybe people overlook all of the other things that are there? I mean, you look at the PDM and there's ways when you're designing a, a, either their home or a community to to deal with the threat of you know forest fires. There's energy right. stuff. I mean, there's so much more than just a garden. And I, I do hear from listeners on occasion that when we talk about permaculture a lot, you know, and this is survivalism, why we spend so much time on permaculture. Well, to me, it's like, well, permaculture is like the only like design science I've found that addresses all human needs. Our, our, you know, our basic needs from a survival standpoint are food, uh, shelter, water, energy, security, and health and sanitation. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's I, I think that, that what happened was that when when Bill Mollison and David Holmgren were developing permaculture, they were looking at 
how to develop a more sustainable agriculture system originally because agriculture is our, our biggest impact on the planet. It's enormous. We're just we're transforming whole ecosystems into food monocultures. And well, what they realized was that if you're developing a sustainable food system, it kind of doesn't matter if the bigger system it's embedded in, if the whole culture is not sustainable either. And they also realized that what we can learn from developing human ecosystems that have to do with food, if we can develop those in, a, in an ecologically sound way, the same lessons apply to developing water systems, developing energy systems, figuring out ways of taking care of our shelter needs. Once we get the food piece down, we can just go around the wheel, those needs that you were describing there, and kind of check them all off. All right, we've learned how to do sustainable food. Let's do it with water. Let's do it with energy. And, you know, that's these are the problems that living beings have been solving for 4 billion years. So nature's got all that figured out of how to get energy, how to, how to create shelter in a sustainable way. So permaculture really is meeting all those needs, just like you say. It's, it's way more than gardening, but people often come to it through gardening because food is, is in some ways our most basic need, and, and that's what we default to when it's like, well, i got to grow my own food. And you know, then, oh, right, I need water. Oh, I need some electricity. Mm -hmm. It just goes on. Because, I mean, we're not going to feed 8.5 billion people with, right. with trowels, you know, garden trowels and sheet mulching and doing everything by hand. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Exactly. You just mentioned four billion years, and it just struck me. I never really thought about it this way before. Do you realize as we get it toward eight billion people, we're getting into a point where there are two human beings for every year that our solar system's been here? <laughs> right. Oh boy, that's big. I've never thought of that, but I mean, it really. And so we're not going to feed all those people with with just you know by manual labor and with hands. So we have to solve the energy quotient. We have to. So we also have to like like deal with each other. Like it's a lot of people to deal with. Like, right. so we need to deal with the human interaction as well. Yeah, that's it. And something I've really been thinking about lately, I keep, I, know, I keep running into these sort of ornery pioneer types in, in permaculture and other things, people who are a little bit hard to get along with <laughs> a lot of, you know, there are yeah. lots of us. Yeah. Right. But we're learning how to work with each other. It's not about necessarily getting along with everybody. It's about figuring out how to work together. That's really the most important thing is we got tasks to do that are bigger than, you know, than my personality or your personality. We don't actually have to agree on everything. We just need to figure out how to work together. Well, and we aren't going to agree on everything. I think that's right. the other thing. Like there's, I, I see a lot of that in permaculture from all sides and, and for, let's say agriculture, sustainability, all of it, where, People stop working with each other because they have a disagreement on 10%. When they yeah. agree on 90%, it's like, don't you think we should focus on the 90%? Exactly. It's so easy, especially with the Internet. You know, you get on Facebook and someone says something and you immediately go, you know, oh, you're wrong about this. But forgetting that, you know, the other 99% of what they're saying you're totally in alignment with. So, yeah, let's let's focus on that. Let's focus on the and and focus on the work. You know, we agree we need food. We need energy. We need shelter. We need water. So let's make that happen and put the other stuff off the table for a little while. We can you know, worry about the politics later. Let's let's just get the jobs done. So your your new book is called The Permaculture City. Regenerative Design for Urban, Suburban, and Town Resilience. 
Uh, with that in mind, kind of what is the main focus of the book? Because it, you know, I, I got an advanced copy, which I'm pretty proud to have in my, my hand right now. Um, that, that's, uh, you know, on the, 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 uh, the review thing for before it actually is released. And I, I can tell you there's a lot more in it than just how to, you know, sheet mulch and grow a garden in your backyard. Yeah, well, that, and that is where it starts. You know, I, I, I'm trying to show where permaculture has gone over the last 15 years or so, which is the book starts with some stuff about design and stuff about food. Well, first I talk a little bit about cities and why it's important to be dealing with cities. But, you know, then to give people familiar territory to enter the book with, I talk about growing food in small spaces and that sort of thing. But it's also based on the idea that a city, well, any place where humans are, there's a, there's a human ecology that's really important that, yeah, we can, we can learn to grow food. I mean, growing food is not that hard. Gardening takes some skills, but you can get it down. The, the harder part, particularly in urban environments is, okay, where do we find land to grow food? How do we make sure that our neighbors aren't hungry so that they don't come after our food? How do we make sure that there's enough water? Because that's you know, all these infrastructures in urban areas are really important to take care of. So the book moves on to looking at the other basic needs, but a big focus of it is how do we make decisions together? How do we create strong senses of neighborhood? How do we get control or input into local government? You know, how, how do we do all the rest of the human things? So the book is a real attempt to show how permaculture's tools, all of our really cool design methods, zones and sectors and needs and yields analysis and all of these other things, how they apply to making decisions around water, around energy, and in particular around community and around livelihood. You know, how do we earn a living? How do we support ourselves uh, in a relatively ecological way and in a way that feels secure? So that's that's where I'm going with it is we take what we've learned in the garden and apply these same tools to all the other basic human needs and and cities are cities and suburbs are the place where most people live so that's where we need to be doing that. So that's that's the focus of the book is let's go beyond the garden with permaculture and here's one way to do it. What what really drove you to write this book? I mean, you're well known for Guy's Garden. I mean, was there something that occurred in, you know, the last few years that maybe uh, kind of pushed you in this direction to take this to a different level? I was really inspired by a lot of the work that people are doing in cities. I mean, the work of, of people like, like groups like City Repair in Portland and a whole bunch of people in Oakland, uh, California. I was just in Jamaica Plain outside of Boston a while ago. There's stuff going on in Brooklyn. Uh, people are trying to rebuild Detroit. I was seeing all these incredible examples in cities of people doing awesome work and realizing we need to be talking to one another. You know, we don't, you don't have to feel alone if you're doing these projects, that there are lots of people working on solving the same problems in their own cities. So what I was trying to do was show people all these really great examples of, of just incredible work that's being done in urban areas to try to make them more resilient, more responsive, to grow more food, to get better connections along the urban-rural interface. So part of it was just people are doing awesome work, and I wanted to kind of showcase some of this and show that there's lots of it going on. So, you know, don't despair. There's there's starting to be a real groundswell of of really cool regenerative work happening in cities. Yeah, definitely. I I think that we overlook that, especially in the prepper space, because we realize if there's 
a catastrophe of some sort. And I think you and I both agree it's potential that we could see some real catastrophes in the future, that cities could become pretty dangerous places pretty fast. But in the end, you're, you're right. That's where most people live. Yeah. And I think that the belief that you could run away to some, you know, mountaintop somewhere and be okay while the rest of the world burns is, is a bit misguided. Uh, I don't necessarily personally want to live in like, you know, South Dallas. Um, but I also am very happy to encourage work in that area to lend my support to things like that, uh, and to do what I can to, uh, to help those areas. But if we're, if we're headed toward any type of disaster or catastrophe, I've always kind of looked at what we do here is like, if you have a fire marshal come to your house, you'd prefer that he comes there and tells you how to keep it from burning down instead of coming there to put the fire out when the flames have already burst through the roof. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people have this dream of, well, when things start to get bad, I'll move to the country and found an intentional community and everything will be fine. And, and if you, if you're not already doing that, if you didn't start doing that 10 years ago, you know, the odds that you're going to be able to do it in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a breakdown are pretty small. So, you know, as my friend Larry Santoyo says, he'll ask his students in classes, so how many of you want to live in a community? And, you know, like three quarters of the class is going to raise their hand. And then he says, you're already living in a community. Sure. You know, it's just you just need to build the networks with people. And again, it's you don't have to get along with that. You know, wh whoever it is next door, you don't have to get along with them. You just need to know how to work together. You know, make a deal where, hey, if your house is on fire, I'll help you put it out. If my house is on fire, you know, we'll both work together. Or, you know, does your dog need feeding while you're on vacation or, you know, just really basic stuff like that. Just, you know, create those community connections wherever you are rather than waiting for, you know, someday the perfect people will be living around me and we'll all be living together. And that's probably not going to happen. It's the people you're living next to right now. Those are your neighbors. Those are the ones who are probably going to be your neighbors when things start to come unglued. So, you know, get get to know them and get a plan going with with your neighbors right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I, I wanted to kind of ask you this question too. Your thoughts on on you know self governance and 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 local control. I've heard you use both of those quite a bit lately, and it seems to me like we do have forms of like local self governance. One example would be an HOA. Not my favorite thing at right. all, right? And it seems that most forms of self-governance at this point are more about more restrictions, which means individuals have less control. How do you think we can begin to develop communities that self-govern that actually give more freedom to the individuals within the group, you know, rather than just say, oh, and you also can't park your car in your driveway? I mean, that's, that's not what we're really looking to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. Well, so many of, of the HOA type of decisions are, are grounded either in fear and also in property values. You know, right now we have the luxury of, you know, thinking, well, if we, if we paint our houses all the same color, it's going to increase property values. And I think as time goes by, that's going to be a, a little bit less concern, you know, like when people are worried about where their food might come from or whether the fire department is still functioning. Uh, I think we'll find that those those get to be pretty trivial concerns. But part of it is, you know, really, really, what are the needs we're trying to meet with with local governments, with something like an HOA or uh, the, the example that I'm getting really inspired by are the uh, local neighborhood associations. 
or potentially a, a school that's nearby or churches. Uh, turns out that churches actually are really good places to start community gardens because part of their mandate is to take care of the local community. Uh, I know people who live in apartment buildings where the landlord uh, wouldn't let them grow anything, but he's hiring some nursery service to come in and mow the lawn. So the, the people in the apartment wrote out a contract saying, you know, we can save you this much money and we promise that we will take care of this and, you know, and actually wrote out a nice little legal document showing that the landlord's bottom line was going to be improved if they could do gardening right there. So, you know, everybody wins in that situation. The landlord saves money and the people in the apartment get to garden. So there, there are all sorts of ways to get access to land in the city. Uh, and you know, land's really expensive, so figuring out what's going to be a really high-value crop, what the right thing to grow is, uh, and and where you can get land for it is is not that difficult. But yeah, it's it's really important to develop these techniques of you know how do we how do we get really good fertility in a small space? How do we make sure that the soil isn't toxic? So those are all things that I go through in the book. Is is how do we make these decisions? How do we get the most bang for our buck in little tiny spaces in the city? Well, and I think there's there's some advantages inherent too. Like you just mentioned soil fertility. So if I give you a 10 by 20 foot space and I say, all I want you to do in the first year is just make that really, really great, highly tillable, awesome soil. Don't care what you produce. Just want awesome soil out of it. It's not hard. You could make a 10 by 20 foot space on a concrete pad into productive soil in a season easily enough by building up. Take three acres of really harsh alkaline land like I have takes a lot of work to improve the fertility across something like that. But when you're forced to focus on that little spot, it actually gets really easy to make whatever is there very, very productive. Exactly. I mean, that constraint of only having a small space turns out to be a real advantage because, right, instead of doing a, you know, instead of taking years to get a couple of acres going, if you've just got 200 square feet, you know, do worm composting, something you can do in a, in, you know, in an urban area really easily, uh, or, or get compost from, you know, from the city. Really easy to take care of that tiny little space and you'll get stuff up and running quicker and you'll get tons of productivity. I mean, 200 square feet, you can grow all the salad greens uh, and, and herbs that you would ever need um, to feed a family of four out of, out of 200 square feet easily. And that's, you know, it's it's something that's doable for people. I think the other thing is that I noticed about your book is that it talks a lot about, you know, how to earn a living, how to create a livelihood for yourself in the city. And a lot of people with the dream of the, the acreage and whatever think they're going to go out and make a living as a farmer. You can make money in agriculture. There, there's no doubt about it. But the, the fastest thing I've seen people make money in agriculture doing lately has been urban farming, microgreens, you know, small scale boutique things like uh, livestock, quail, stuff like that. It's a lot faster of a pathway. But there's a lot of other things we can do in, in urban areas because, well, there's these things called people and people turn into these things called customers. So there's a lot of ways that we can make that work. And I almost feel like some people in permaculture don't want to see that because they want to hold on to the, you know, the farm vision. And they might be hurting themselves in the short, near, midterm because they, they're not letting themselves become, you know, ingrained in where they're at. They want to kind of almost like keep a distance. Like, you know, somebody's leaving, so you don't want to have too deep of a relationship with them. 
Right, right. Yeah, and that's another thing that that when you really open yourself up to what permaculture's design tools can do for you, one of the things permaculture is great at is a what I what we call a needs and resources analysis. It's like what what is needed in your neighborhood. You know, maybe there is a restaurant or you know people who like to eat really high end food. But if that's not the case, what are the needs? You know, is there someone who needs plumbing? Is are there people who need electrical work? Does does the neighborhood want to start doing rainwater catchment? Are there gray water systems to install? You know, just just do this needs analysis and see where it fits in with your resources, with your skills. You know, that that way you can have a decent source of livelihood. You know, I mean, how many customers does any small business need? I don't I don't need the 6 million people who live in the Bay Area where, you know, near where I live to all be my customers. You know, I need I need a handful. And and those I I can find those. You know, if you have a business you can find in your area if you're providing something of value, then you'll find those customers. You only need a few of them. And if they're your neighbors, if they're people who live around you, there's an extra incentive for them to support you and for you to support them. You know, I, I will go to my to support them first because you know, I, I, want, I want happy neighbors. I don't want out-of-work neighbors who are, you know, selling something I don't want them to sell to, uh, to support themselves. I want, I want all my neighbors to have good livelihood. So I will them, you know, before I go to someone that I don't know. Do you think that maybe in permaculture we have way too many people with too narrow of a focus on what they would do for a livelihood? Like, it, it almost like it, it's gotten tunnel vision to where if it's going to be permaculture and I'm going to make a living with it, it has to be growing food. It's either growing food or teaching or doing design work. And it's like, yeah, there, there are livelihoods in those, but you know, I want a permaculture trained accountant. I want a permaculture trained <laughs> electrician. You know, that's, that's the sort of thing that, that permaculture, I think, applies itself to really, really well is all these other livelihoods. And part of that is, okay, you know, I'm a permaculture accountant, you know, I, and so, you know, Who's who would be their customers? Certain, you know, a, a lot of us need accounting done. I'll I'll go support someone who's down with permaculture as my accountant for sure. Well, there's a lot of talk about let's Bitcoin things like that, right? So, would it make sense in your community if you wanted to develop that to take somebody that's an expert on finance and money and say, okay, if we're all your customers and you know all of our you know details of how we manage our finances. Figure out how we can create barter and exchange between ourselves and, and create a closed loop system rather than just sitting in your, your, your house and thinking about it while you're trying to grow an apple tree. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's exactly the point is, is how do we create our own networks? You know, we don't have to wait for someone else to, from top down to, to build a network for us. You know, we have all these tools now. There's, there's this huge toolkit for network creation, for connecting with one another. So let's, let's use those. Let's figure out how we can find the people who, who I would love to support, you know, who want to support me. How do we, you know, how do we kind of make each other valuable to one another and then support, support each other doing that? I think not being purists either. Like I have, you know, a lot of things in my home that are not, you know, designed by a permaculturist, you know. Um, and as I'm trying to develop community, that means that other people will have the same type of things. There's there's a, a consumer-level world that we have for now, and there's a transitional period. And I think some people want to go from, okay, I'm in the, in the normal world, and transition everything about their life in 15 minutes. And I don't think it's realistic. I think that we're 
looking at like a, a to the totality of a societal transition that's going to be multi-generational. Yeah, yeah. I well, I don't think, you know, it's good not to beat ourselves up for not being perfect. You're you're not going to do everything perfectly. You're not going to make this instant shift, at least most people aren't, to being totally sustainable, totally off the grid, you know, everything organic and and homegrown and all of that. It's so we need to be forgiving with each other, you know, for both to ourselves and to other people that if we're just making a step at a time, you know, just make make one little step and then another little step. We don't have to make the giant jump it's each little piece is good each little tiny step in the right direction and yeah you know okay so i'm still using propane or you know i'm still driving to the store but you know i'm i'm doing better in other ways i'm i'm trying to make up for that in in as whatever ways that are are working for me so yeah just let's let's give ourselves a break a little bit and and give ourselves credit for making the effort and we'll we'll get there it may take a while but it's going to take a while well, doing what you can with what you have, right? So, like, we look at something like, okay, if I cook something and I use wood that I cut from my wood lot, okay, that seems like a really great way to be off-grid. But let's say I was cooking something like beans and meat in, like, a big pot of that. If I use electricity or propane to get that thing up to 200 degrees, wrap it in a blanket, bury it in a hole in the ground, haven't I actually used, you know, 10 hours later while it's slow-cooked into this delicious concoction less energy than you know you know you know god knows how much coppiced uh, black locust would to cook it for that length of time like there's there's always ways to to bridge those gaps yeah exactly there's always a little something you can do right you've used some propane or whatever electricity but you've used a lot less by just yeah putting it in a hay box cooker or something like that how can we use the technology we've already got and then leverage it exactly the way that you just said that's it and make it attractive to people too because we want to win conference right right that's everybody it. thinks they have to live in a mud hut it's kind of tough yeah yeah it i think beauty is definitely a function and part of it is yeah let's let's make it pretty let's make it attractive you know i, I one of my goals is that if people start out, you know, as people, you know, whatever they're going to freak out about, whether it's, you know, sudden losing their job or worrying about climate change or, you know, the collapse of the currency system or whatever it is, you know, I want to have an attractive alternative ready. I want to have a model of, you know, hey, you don't need to freak out. Doesn't this look wonderful? Come over here. Here, have some of this homegrown cucumber. You know, here, come and, you know, here, use, use my rocket stove heater to keep yourself warm. You know, just offer offer these sorts of alternatives to show that yeah, we've actually got solutions. You don't need to freak out, you know, and and, and just make create all these places, all of us, these places where things are doing better, where we've got good things to show people. And if we create enough of those, you know, they'll be attractive to people who are starting to freak out. Just don't freak out. Come over here. Look at this. Isn't it wonderful? Well, these are things you can do, right? These are these are solutions you can take. Because, like, I think, and I was wondering if you feel the same way, like, there's too much freaking out in permaculture, right? I, You were at Voices, and we were out there by the, the harbor and all. And if you remember, like, we were up by that fire pit. And you look down, and the harbor is like a good 10 feet below there at high tide. And I was talking to these two young guys, and they're like, don't people understand within 20 years that water is going to be up there in the hotel? And I'm like, oh, look, guys, you know, if we believe the absolute worst predictions of the absolute most alarmist people, those numbers don't work out that way. And whatever's going to happen there, 
you're not going to change that, but your life is what you can change. And I think there's a lot of people that run the permaculture because they're freaking out, and we need to figure out ways to channel their freak out into productivity, if that makes sense. Right, right. It's like, what what can you do in your life? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to fix San Diego Harbor or, you know, whatever it is, but there is something that I can do either for me or for my neighbor. You know, it's it's those sorts of things. Again, again local is this huge leverage point that, no, I'm not going to solve, you know, the war in Afghanistan or that sort of thing, although there are probably other people who are going to be able to do that. But what, you know, what can I do right here? What can you do right here? What's one little step? You know, what's, what's a Adjacent to where I am right now that I can fix. So when you when you look at all this, you you were telling me before we got on the air today that you're actually putting together to go along with your book. Again, the book is called The Permaculture City, kind of an online course you're gonna be doing this this fall? Yeah, starting in October, we're doing an online course that's going to start out with with growing food in small spaces, but then it, it's going to walk through. We'll have a couple of free webinars like that um, that people can take that we've got all sorts of good information in, and then it's it's gradually going to move over the next few sessions of the course over a couple of months, uh, looking at you know how do we how do we solve our water issues in urban and suburban places? How do we work with energy? How do we work with community? How do we create more sound livelihood? So it's actually some of the ideas in the book, except I'm really going to be going into more how to, you know, exactly what can we, what are some real, real solutions that we can enact in each one of these places. So that'll be starting up in October and there's um, the the easiest way to find out about it, I'll have a link for folks um, up on my website, patternliteracy.com. But if you just go there and, and sign up for my newsletter, um, and of course, I won't share your email or anything like that, but I'll keep you posted on that online course and on other things that I'm up to. Very cool. Um, as you're talking about that, it makes me think about a story we covered recently on air where the city of Seattle is looking at getting rid of what they call single something zoning, where basically this lot can have one structure for living in on it. And I think there's a lot of things pushing that, you know, the tiny house movement and things like that. The fact that I think at some levels they're looking at it going, okay, well, everybody's getting around this by putting the tiny house on wheels, and we can't tax that. So if we let them build it, then we could tax it. But I also think that, like, so years ago, I said that we're going to see this very weird phenomenon. It's going to be the death and the resurrection of the suburbs at the same time, meaning there would be suburbs that people would just run away from, and there would be ones that would be developed. And there'd be places where people would go in and buy, you know, like they're doing in Detroit just right now. They'll buy 20 houses for five grand a piece, knock down all the fences, burn down 19 of the houses, and have like the new, you know, the new country, so to speak. And then there'd be other places where the density would actually go up. And it seems like Seattle's like moving in that direction because the cities are starting to realize that's going to happen. And if you want to be the one that survives, you need a bigger tax base. And people can't afford to develop new houses in an expensive city like Seattle anymore. So you're, you're going to have to solve this problem with some more creative type of development. Yeah, I was actually just up in Seattle last weekend and people were talking about that. And Portland is doing something similar where if, if you're, you, you're allowed or even encouraged to put up an additional dwelling unit in, in your yard. And this will keep people going all the way from building large apartment buildings. But, you know, you'll get help with your mortgage because house prices in these desirable cities are so high that you'll be able to rent out a little space. Uh, and that'll, that can slow down gentrification a bit. You don't need to flip your house and get paid a boatload for it. 
Uh, instead, you can have an, an additional income. And this is this is another piece of this. You know, how do we make things work in these expensive cities? You know, creating additional dwelling units that can be rented very reasonably so that the tenants get a good deal and the owner of the property gets a little help with their income as well. So, right, it's, you know, just see where the trends are going. The cities that are paying attention to where people are headed like this and then getting out in front of it, you know, those are the those, those are those are the suburbs that are going to be desirable. You know, people in suburbs often have a little bit more land, and suburbs are often built on good farmland. So here we are. We've got suburban farms supplying an urban market that is right there. You got a problem of you know extra land in in suburbia, and it's a little bit far out from the city. All right, we grow food and we transport it into the city. So there's there's problem, there's solution right there. And we need to, I think, to make that work, we have to figure out how do we do more with less vehicle traffic. And it's not, I'm not one of these guys that wants to get rid of every car because we're going to kill the striped-tailed foofy flua in Argentina or something. Um, I'm a realist. But I also, like, when I first heard about these objections to, like, mother-in-law houses and stuff like that, tiny houses, I'm like a total anarchist. So I'm like, people should be able to do what they want with their land. You're only doing this because you want to be a busybody. And I was watching a show on it, and I heard one of the neighbors say what he was opposed to, and I had to admit it was a cogent, honest concern. He's like, this is an older neighborhood. Most of these houses don't have garages or driveways. Everybody parks in the street. If if one out of four of these houses puts in something like this, and we increase the density of this neighborhood by 25%, and you put 25% more cars on the street, you can't get through here. He's like, if my neighbor, you know, he's like, I don't complain about or anything, but my neighbor has, you know, some people over on the weekend, it blocks up the whole road from just that. So for that to work, there has to be an understanding that that's a problem that we have to deal with. And as we're developing new neighborhoods, we have to think about that in the development of those new neighborhoods. Right, exactly. Is how do people get access to transportation? And we're, you know, we're not going to eliminate cars overnight. I mean, I'd certainly, you know, but, but we can design systems where we need fewer cars. You know, things like Uber and Lyft and, and, you know, the rapid response public transportation that's coming out, web-based public transit that comes when you want it. Uh, there are all sorts of solutions like that, or even the, uh, you know, Google's working on these driverless cars that you won't need parking lots. The cars will just go somewhere else. And there, there are all kinds of solutions like that where, yeah, we're not going to stop using the private automobile, but we can reduce our reliance on it very easily without, you know, without increasing traffic. Yeah, definitely. And it, it's not a, it's not a, an instant solution like you're saying. I, I do think there's a lot that can be done with it. And I have to say, it was the one thing that made me stop and go, yeah, I, I get why some neighbors might be opposed to this. But there are ways to solve it anyway. Um, again, though, but we have to like – so I guess my point there is these ideas work in some neighborhoods but not all. But – Every neighborhood can do something toward rectifying the problem if the neighborhood wants to be part of the solution. Yeah, exactly right. Again, just little things that you don't have to bite it all off. Just, you know, what's what's the small step that you see? What's the low-hanging fruit right in front of you that you can help make happen? And I, I don't think you're advocating, like, everybody should move to the city. I think you're saying a lot of people are already there and should do the best they can with what they have. Right, exactly. Yeah, if you're already there, yeah, you know, you're thinking of moving to the country, all right, if that really, you know, go through the assessment, if it really makes sense, if it's really going to work for you, you know, then all right, maybe that's the path. But on the other hand, you're in a place, you've already got your patterns down, you, you may already have a job, you've got a place in your neighbors and your city becomes a better place to live. 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, like, we have to be realistic, too, about we all have different opportunities. So, like, the, the cities in, and towns in around Dallas-Fort Worth, they're a little more difficult to skin than some of these places I've seen, like, on the West Coast. Like, there's no doubt that those towns were developed a little bit more forethought toward foot traffic and what have you. Even a, a high-density suburb around here, the only thing there is more houses. There's no shops. There's no commerce. There's no nothing. Um, and it's one of the things, you know, I kind of like living in Texas, but it's one of the things I'm, I'm a little envious of other areas on. You know, I grew up in a town in Pennsylvania where you, when you went to town, you could walk down the road to town. And there were stores to do, you know, to get something to eat in or to pick up supplies in or what have you. And, and not every place is going to be that way. Right. Although, you know, with changes in zoning, you know, someone who, who has that they want to turn into a restaurant or a little storefront or something like that. You know, there's, there's no reason that it has to be a, you know, a, a specially built supermarket. Someone can, can do a house conversion when, you know, when suddenly we realize, wow, it's going to cost me 15 bucks to drive down to the mall to get stuff. And wouldn't it be nice if there were a store in my neighborhood? You know, I think there'll be increased demand to solve problems like that. Yeah, and it's gonna, that's going to take a look. I think in some cases it's going to be done in concert with authority, and I think in some cases it's going to take, once again, some civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, right. Just start selling something out of your front door. You know? <laughs> as long as it's not meth, you'll probably be able to defend yourself. Exactly, you that's know? right. If, if it's uh, meeting a real need, then then it's it's going to do it. Because it, it, it makes me sick Like when I see like the cops shutting down a lemonade stand or something. It's like, guys, don't you... Don't you really have something more important <laughs> yeah. to be doing than that? And then, I, but I also look at the individual cop that's going, I don't want to do this, but you know, and at some point you got to get to the point where, where people just say, I'm not doing it. But right now the guy's trying to keep his job. I can't believe any cop that's ever been sent to shut down a lemonade stand or a bake sale was happy about being sent. Right. To really wants to do it. Yeah. But you know, there's a complaint. They got to do something about it. Exactly. So, you know, but we'll, we just work on those laws one, you know, one step at a time. In some ways, don't you think it's good when that happens? Because it makes people realize that the problem's there. Like, I think a lot of the problems we're not solving is because we've conveniently hid them so we don't have to solve them. But when, you know, when you realize, okay, the, the fact that I can't set up my little restaurant's one thing. But if these the re, the same reason that I can't do that is these the same reason these little girls can't you know raise some money to go to summer camp or whatever it starts to put it in people's head like okay this isn't right yeah. and if we don't see the like as bad as it makes me if we don't see that happen then we just don't realize that that's a problem and we we end up with this it's totalitarianship as far as I'm concerned if you can't sell lemonade out of your front yard what's the point of calling it your front yard. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So making these issues visible are a really important thing. This is why my hat is off to people who are willing to be test cases, you know, who, who are willing to grow vegetables in their front yard or, you know, set up rainwater harvesting, even though it's legal or make a curb cut or whatever it is. You know, just great. You know, you may take some flack, but, you know, I'll, I'll help. I'll throw money into your legal defense fund or, you know, get a reporter over there to write an article about it. You know, we can support people for doing those things if we're not quite ready to do them ourselves. Or in exposed stupidity, because I think one of the advantages we have over elected officials is they care if they look stupid. I don't care <laughs> if somebody thinks I'm stupid. I really, I got enough people that like me that I don't care, right? But if you're an elected official, you don't want to look stupid. So an example is this guy in Colorado. They tried to put an exception for rain barrels, you know, kind of a first step. 
And he said, that's like saying it's okay to steal a little bit from a store. <laughs> and you're just thinking, Duh. really have authority over people? But like that guy's picture should be all over college. This is what this person actually thinks and shame them into doing the right thing because I, I don't know where you come off thinking that's like a valid point. You, you listen to something like that, and you just think you really believe you, you, uh, the state, owns the water that falls on the roof of my house, and all the things they're concerned about, they're actually making worse by preventing this. Like most of that water's lost anyway; it doesn't ever end up where they think it does. Like we have people making regulations about things they do not understand in the in the most uh, trivial levels; they do not understand them. Yeah, exactly right. So again, getting getting this information out, you know, free information flow is a really important piece of it. What are some occupations you think that people could create for themselves in some of these situations in these in these cities, those livelihoods that are a little bit beyond, you know, I sell eggs and and and, and herbs. Yeah, well, I, I think again, looking looking at what the needs in your neighborhood is, there's some would be just information, you know, like. Um, helping your neighbors find out what what resources are available in the neighborhood. You know, like, like if you set up something like a little neighborhood Craigslist where you would get a, a little commission off of each sale, something like that. Somehow helping other people connect to the resources that are around them. You know, we've got all this information technology that, you know, if you are the developer of your little neighborhood app that, that helps connect people together, something like that. Uh, but a lot of it is... Know, looking, looking for what what are the needs in your neighborhood? You know, you, and I've mentioned things like being able to install rainwater harvesting systems or composting toilets, or you know, just again look at go around this wheel of you know, in terms of you know water, energy, things like health, things like security, uh, and just see where where are the where are the solutions missing? Where are the pieces that are not there, and how can you plug into that? Um, so a lot of it's going to be really specific to your neighborhood, um, but you know, just just getting an idea of what's what's missing, what's what's not there, what are the gray areas, what what needs to happen to make this a cooler place to live. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities when people get creative, even kind of edging back toward the the you know the growing stuff. There's a gal listens to my show. I can't think of her name right now, but I met her a few years ago at a convention. Um, and she has like this, this, this booth at a farmer's market. And she said, like, I can't grow enough to produce product for my booth. So I just make sure that one thing in every product is from my backyard. So she did like tortillas and she used organic flour and what have you, but she used am dried amaranth leaf in the tortillas to, to boost the protein and that she could grow. So I heard from her recently. She's now one of the owners of the farmer's market itself. Yeah, there you go. Exactly right. Some find some little need like that, or some some little extra benefit that you can provide for people, and then just keep your eyes open and and keep levering leveraging it like that. And someone will say, "Wow, you're good at this. We're gonna we're gonna help you out," just like she is with the farmers market now. Yeah, I I think that like that's like the other thing that we need to start doing is thinking more entrepreneurial. Like a lot of people say, they don't want to be in business; they want to you know a safe job and whatever. I think that world is. Like already seriously on the ropes, but I think it's 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 coming more and more to an end where the average person could just go get a job because yeah. the automation, man. I don't know if you've paid much attention to that, but it is, and it's coming from low level to high level. Like you know, anesthesiologists are being out, you know, put out of out of jobs with with automation. 
Right. That, no, that's that's another thing that I talk about in the book is that there are all these kind of middle layers in employment now, and those are really, really vulnerable. That, that okay, if you don't necessarily want to be an entrepreneur, then find someone who you trust and who likes you who is an entrepreneur and work with them. Make a really direct connection um, to your employer. That If you're in a big firm where you're kind of interchangeable par, you're definitely at risk. It's really about having a strong claim to your livelihood. And you don't have a very strong claim if you're just kind of in, in the in middle management somewhere. You have a very weak claim. So getting in direct contact with the people who are make decision, making decisions um, or be an entrepreneur yourself and for everyone, but somehow get yourself associated with, with the people who are making the hiring and firing decisions and you know, help find out what, what, what would make you valuable to them and become valuable to them. And, and that, that gives you far more job security. The other piece that I think that is happening a lot is that you don't just have one job. You know, that it's, there's, there's what, what people call nickel generators where you've got, you know, I have like five or six different income streams. And if one of them takes off, great. But if they don't, you know, if they're just five or six small ones altogether, they take care of me pretty well. And I think that's much more the wave of the future too is it allows you to surf a little bit where, hey, this one's, you know, this book is selling well or this product is selling well. So I'm going to put emphasis on that. This one's not doing so well. So, you know, we'll let that one ride right now. But multiple income streams and making yourself valuable to the decision makers uh, regarding employment, I think, are two of the keys to staying you know, staying employed, having having livelihood in the future. Yeah, adaptability. And going back to more of what this country was 150, 200 years ago, I mean, everybody, even if you had a trade or a job, also was an entrepreneur in some way. You know, they grew some corn for a cash crop or tobacco for a cash crop or, or something like that, or they did, you know, side work or, or, or what have you. And I, I've talked to people that have kind of gone into that model. They seem a lot happier. I have friends in New Jersey that were paying fourteen grand a year in property taxes <laughs> on a house that wasn't it was a nice house but it was I mean I would have paid fourteen grand a year in mortgage on this house <laughs> let alone right. property taxes alone and the guy had been in IT for like eighteen years and he's going to get his retirement from his company at twenty years and at eighteen and a half years they just let him go wow yes he was in IT they they pack, you know pack your box and they walk you out. Because you can take the whole company down in five minutes if you're like the head of IT, right? Right. Yeah, they want you out of there. Yeah. So they throw them out. They decide, well, we can't live in this house anymore without him having that job. And they rented a little place, and he basically set up a handyman business. And he was like miserable for the first six months because he was resentful. It's understandable. You're, sure. I gave you 18 you years, and you yeah. crapped me. But now they're just so much happier. Nice. That's you know, because nice. I, I mean, I may not work today. Okay, then I have a day off. Not, you know, I, you're not, they're not necessarily worried about, do I get enough work this month to pay the bills? Like, that's kind of going to see to itself. I might work like crazy seven days in a row without a day off, but then I might take four or five days off. And, and I think that, that is a lot more human, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's much more like our, you know, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle where we did one thing for a little while and another thing for a little while. If, uh, you know, suddenly the game was available, we did a lot of that, you know, worked like crazy for a few days. But but the idea of doing the same thing 
every day, over and over again, year in, year out. That's really unnatural. That is not a natural human pattern. And that is something that's been imposed on us after the Industrial Revolution. And I think it's a very short-lived phenomenon. And we're starting to leave those days now. And, you know, it's it's just, it's much more natural. And I think much more happy-making for us to do a wide variety of things every day or, or at least every week or two to change into a completely different rhythm as the seasons change, as the day length change, as the needs change, and as, as what's available to us changes. Don't you think that's had a remarkably ill effect on our health, too? Like, because that if you start thinking about, like, chronic medical conditions today, you can think about mental issues where people are on medication so that they can cope with doing the same thing every day. Or right. the kid can cope with sitting at a desk eight hours a day when he's seven years old and should be chasing bullfrogs instead. Uh, or we think about, you know, like how many injuries we have that are not really injuries, the repetitive motion strain, right. carpal tunnel syndrome. What do you want to bet, you know, 500 years ago, there was no carpal tunnel syndrome, except maybe for a guy that, like, sewed sails for ships or something. I mean, no one did anything, you know, enough times, or tennis elbow, or, or what have you. Like, these are all, like, modern creations, mental, physical, uh, and, you know, inflammation disorders. All of these things seem to be at least linked on some level to the fact that people live very unhuman existences at this point. Right. Disconnected and doing things that we don't really enjoy doing over and over and over again. It's why, you know, more than half the country is on antidepressants right now and that sort of thing. It's There are these indicators, right, like that, that, that really say, wait a minute, we should be doing things differently rather than medicating people then let's let's eliminate the cause of of the the need for medication and you know do do much more interesting work and i and we're we're getting there you know that's those the need for it is really starting to rise and the possibilities of doing it are are starting to arise yeah i mean i was listening to somebody i can't remember who but they were showing these different herbs and one was valerian and and the, the speaker said something like you know you can use this as an antidepressant if you can possibly be depressed in a place like this <laughs> you know, exactly. and you look around right. and think, yeah, you know, St. John's Wort and Valerian, yeah, I don't really need that now except to look at it. Um, because I, I think that we, and I think that's why permaculture's kind of taken off, is that, and didn't, like in the very early years, like people like Jeff that have been around forever today, from the early 80s, late 70s, when they first heard about it, they thought it was just going to be something everybody did. It kind of lagged until this last 10 years when it kind of really exploded. And I think it's because people finally got lost enough that when they heard something that made sense, they were ready to grab it. Because we all know this is not normal behavior when we look at a, you know, the, the typical stereotypical city of sidewalks and barrenness and, and, and people just going from one place to the other and back and doing the same thing every day and not having that kind of village ethic going along with it. Yeah, exactly. So um, you want to tell folks again about your course you have coming up, your book, your website, all that good stuff? Yeah, yeah. My website is patternliteracy.com, those two words. And we have a brand new, I have a brand new book out called The Permaculture City, which is uh, for urban and suburban and small town dwellers. Uh, really, the way I think of it is anywhere there, where there's more plants, which is where most of us live. Uh, just a, a book on applying permaculture to, to human environments. Uh, and then I'm doing an online course starting in the fall. Uh, and if you just sign up for my newsletter at the uh, at, at my 
pattern literacy i'll get information out about that and i'm not gonna not gonna spam people i only send the newsletter out a few times a year uh, so we'll just have some information on the online course which follows the book to some extent it's about urban and suburban and small town permaculture in the broad sense how to grow food how to become more independent on energy how to deal with water issues and particularly community and livelihood how can we make our towns better places for us to live just in really small steps that anybody can do Very cool, man. Well, I'll make sure I have links to all of that in the show notes. I appreciate you for being on the air with us today, Toby, and I appreciate you for the work you've done over the years. Thanks, Jack. I really love all the work you're doing, too, and thanks very much. This has been lots of fun. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Toby Hemingway, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget are what we eat I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess when we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Yeah.